Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Well, hi there, and welcome to Loving Liberty. Glad to catch up with you once again. It's been a very busy weekend. There's a lot to talk about as we kick off today's show. It is Monday, the 18th of May. In this the year 2020 of our Lord, I think a year that a lot of people would give back <laughs> if there was a return policy on such, but there isn't. And so uh, let's start out. First of all, I, I went to the uh, Utah Business Revival's Spiritual Revival this weekend. My son and I traveled up to Salt Lake City, went to the state capitol. It was a good experience. I'm going to talk about it in detail in the second hour of the show. Much smaller crowd than what we've seen at previous gatherings. And, you know, I guess I can understand that. Uh, you know, in a lot of ways, life is starting to look a little more normal. So maybe it was harder to get people to break away. The ones who did show up, I think, uh, found their time very, very uh, well spent. The messages were right on target, a very uh, interesting, diverse, maybe even eclectic group of people gathered together to assert religious freedom. And, uh, and we met some interesting opposition, too. I'll talk about that coming up in the next hour as well. In this hour of the program and podcast, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, where did this current wave of tyranny, a.k.a. the lockdowns, where did this originate? Is this something that was just made up on the spur of the moment? Or, you know, did, did our illustrious leaders just have all this information at their fingertips and know what to do because they studied history and drew from the lessons of what works and what didn't? Uh, no. Actually, we're going to talk about that here in just a moment. As Jeffrey Tucker explains, the current wave of tyranny actually has its roots in a 2006 bioterrorism proposal. Interesting. We'll talk about what a couple of different states have done and some of the lessons that can be drawn from their approach to the coronavirus, speaking specifically of North Carolina and Mississippi. Both states had very similar low impact. One state took a very strict lockdown approach, the other uh, much less strict. And it's interesting that uh, there's, there's not a wide divergence in the numbers of cases or, or instances of coronavirus. We're going to also touch on the fact that it's probably safe to say we're passing through one of our great national tests right now. We've had other ones throughout our history. This plays into that whole fourth turning cycle of history. But the question that we're asking right now is, will our exceptional principles, the ones on which this nation was founded, the ones which have sustained us through other national tests, will they be enough to make the difference as they have in earlier times? Got a great article on that. And last but not least, this is probably my favorite article of the whole hour. Max Slavo has a terrific piece on the consequences of crashing the economy. We hear over and over again, well, you know, it was the virus that made this happen, but it wasn't. And he makes a very solid case. What crashed the economy was the people who obeyed immoral and illegitimate orders. Ouch. Let's start with Jeff Tucker's article, and that is the, the 2006 origins of the lockdown idea. Jeff Tucker says, now begins the grand effort on display in thousands of articles and news broadcasts daily, how to normalize the lockdown and all the destruction of the last two months. And he reminds us, we didn't lock down the entire country or almost the entire country in 1968, 69 or 1957 or 1949 to 1952 or even during 1918. But in a few terrifying days in March of 2020, it happened to all of us 
causing an avalanche of social, cultural, and economic destruction that will ring through the ages. And Tucker's point here is that there's nothing normal about it. He says, we'll be trying to figure out what happened to us for decades hence. And so he asks, how did a temporary plan to preserve hospital capacity turn into two to three months of near-universal house arrest that ended up causing worker furloughs, furloughs rather at 256 hospitals, a stoppage of international travel, a 40% job loss among people earning less than $40,000 a year, devastation of every economic sector, mass confusion and demoralization, a complete ignoring of all fundamental rights and liberties, not to mention the mass confiscation of private property with forced closures of millions of businesses. Well, he says, whatever the answer, it's got to be a bizarre tale. But what's truly surprising is just how recent the theory behind lockdown and forced distancing actually is. Jeff Tucker says, so far as anyone can tell, the intellectual machinery that made this mess was invented 14 years ago, not by epidemiologists, but by computer simulation, simulation modelers. It was adopted not by experienced doctors. In fact, they warned ferociously against it, but instead by politicians. Now it starts to become clear, doesn't it? Tucker says, let's start with the phrase social distancing, which has mutated into forced human separation. He says the first time he heard it was in the 2009 movie Contagion. The first time it appeared in the New York Times was February 12th, 2006. This is a quote from that article. If the avian flu goes pandemic while Tamiflu and vaccines are still in short supply, experts say the only protection most Americans will have is social distancing, which is the new politically correct way of saying quarantine. But distancing also encompasses less drastic measures, like wearing face masks, staying out of elevators, and the elbow bump. Such stratagems, those experts say, will rewrite the ways we interact, at least during the weeks when the waves of influenza are washing over us. End quote. Now, Jeff Tucker says, maybe you don't remember that the avian flu of 2006 didn't amount to much. It's true, despite all the extreme warnings about its lethality, lethality rather, that H5N1 didn't turn into much at all. What it did do, however, was send the existing president, George W. Bush, to the library to read about the 1918 flu and its catastrophic results. He asked for some experts to submit some plans to him about what to do when the real thing comes along. And the New York Times from April 20th, I think that April 22nd of 2020, tells the story from there. Fourteen years ago, two federal government doctors, Richard Hatchett and Carter Metcher, met with a colleague at a burger joint in suburban Washington for a final review of a proposal they knew would be treated like a piñata, telling Americans to stay home from work and school the next time the country was hit by a deadly pandemic. When they presented their plan not long after, it was met with skepticism and a degree of ridicule by senior officials who, like others in the United States, had grown accustomed to relying on the pharmaceutical industry with its ever-growing array of new treatments to confront evolving health challenges. Doctors Hatchett and Metcher were proposing that Americans in some places might have to turn back to an approach, self-isolation, first widely employed in the Middle Ages. How that idea, born out of a request by President George W. Bush to ensure the nation was better prepared for the next contagious disease outbreak, became the heart of the national playbook for responding to a pandemic, is one of the untold stories of the coronavirus crisis which is why we're covering it here on this broadcast.
Back to the article from the New York Times. It required the key components, Dr. Metcher, a Department of Veterans Affairs physician, and Dr. Hatchett, an oncologist turned White House advisor, to overcome intense initial opposition. It brought their work together with that of a Defense Department team assigned to a similar task. And it had some unexpected detours, including a deep dive into the history of the 1918 Spanish flu and an important discovery kicked off by a high school research project pursued by the daughter of a scientist at the Sandia National Laboratories. The, content, the concept of social distancing, it says, is now intimately familiar to almost everyone. But as it first made its way through the federal bureaucracy in 2006 and 2007, it was viewed as impractical, unnecessary, and politically infeasible. End quote. Now, Jeff Tucker says, notice that in the course of this planning, neither legal nor economic experts were brought in to consult and advise. Instead, it fell to Metcher, formerly of Chicago, and an intensive care doctor with no previous expertise in pandemics, and the oncologist, Hatchet. But what of this uh, mention of the 14-year-old daughter, the high school daughter? Her name is Laura Glass, and she recently declined to be interviewed when the Albuquerque Journal did a deep dive of this history. From their article, Laura, with some guidance from her dad, devised a computer simulation that showed how people, family members, co-workers, students in schools, people in social situations interact. What she discovered was that school kids come in contact with about 140 people a day, more than any other group. Based on that finding, her program showed that in a hypothetical town of 10,000 people, 5,000 would be infected during a pandemic if no measures were taken but only 500 would be infected if schools were closed. End quote. Now, Laura's name appears on the foundational paper arguing for lockdowns and forced human separation. That paper is Targeted Social Distancing Designs for Pandemic Influenza, published in 2006. It set out a model for forced separation and applied it with good results backwards in time to 1957. They conclude with a chilling call for what amounts to a totalitarian lockdown, All stated very matter-of-factly. This is from the paper. Quote, implementation of social distancing strategies is challenging. They likely must be imposed for the duration of the local epidemic and possibly until a strain-specific vaccine is developed and distributed. If compliance with the strategy strategy is high over this period, an epidemic within a community can be averted. However, if neighboring communities do not also use these in- interventions, infected neighbors will continue to introduce influenza and prolong the local epidemic, albeit at a depressed level more easily accommodated by healthcare systems. In other words, it was a high school science experiment that eventually became the law of the land, propelled not by science, but by politics. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. Brian Hyde at your service. I've been sharing with you an article from Jeffrey R. Tucker. Make that Jeffrey A. Tucker. Sorry, Jeff. uh, From the American Institute for Economic Research. It will be included in the show notes. And I would encourage you to check it out for yourself. It's a very in-detail article. And I was just blown away to find that all of this lockdown stuff. I know we've asked the question. I've asked it myself many times in the last few weeks. Where did this come from? Where did these protocols originate And it turns out it was some high school student's computer simulation or model of how could we prevent a pandemic. But it very explicitly calls for 
tyrannical approaches. And it wasn't ever done with any consultation from economists or even legal experts. It was just strictly done on, well, you know, if we keep people apart from each other without looking at what are some of the secondary or tertiary impacts that it might have. That's a big violation of some of the most basic laws of economics. Hazlitt would back me up on this. Bastiat would do it as well. You don't implement policies without looking beyond the immediate intended effect and also in encouraging yourself to consider who else might this affect that wouldn't be seen immediately. What would be some of the unintended consequences? And I think we've seen unintended consequences in spades. As Jeffrey Tucker wraps up his article, he says, ideas have consequences, as they say. Dream up an idea for a virus-controlling totalitarian society, one without an end game, and eschewing any experience-based evidence that it would achieve the goal, and you might see it implemented someday. Lockdown may be the new orthodoxy, but that doesn't make it medically sound or morally correct. At least now, we know that a great many doctors and scholars in 2006 actually did their best to stop this nightmare from unfolding. Their mighty paper should serve as a blueprint for dealing with the next pandemic. And he has a link to that as well. So check it out in the show notes, lovingliberty.net. Just pick up the first hour of Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde from Monday, May 18th. All right, let's uh, let's shift gears now. And we'll talk a little bit about rigid lockdowns versus relative freedom. A tale of two southern governors. This is an article from John L. Pritchett and Ed Turiaki, Turak, let me try that again, Turiakian. Sorry, Ed. I always do this with, with names that give me just the slightest bit of trouble. But these two authors ask the question, how do you explain the vastly different approach to the pandemic from two red states with similarly low coronavirus impact? Now, in North Carolina, they point out Governor Roy Cooper adopted the policy premise that anything done in the name of safety from the coronavirus trumps all other interests, including economic, religious or other health considerations. Despite comparatively low numbers in the Tar Heel state, the ninth most populous state in the United States, and with no evidence of the health care system being overwhelmed, North Carolina has been in full lockdown for over a month. And it doesn't matter if you live in the mountains or on the coast, rural or urban. All residents are required to shelter in place. Despite the crippling effect COVID-19 has had on their $25 billion tourism industry, the devastation to the small business community and over a million job losses, thou shalt not work unless the good, good governor has deemed you essential. Now, on the other hand, in Mississippi, Governor Tate Reeves has operated under an alternative premise that medical safety is a major consideration. But so is allowing people to protest or to fish or to earn a living. The governor in the Magnolia state has taken a lot of heat for being slow to slam the economy shut and quick to discuss reopening it. He's also caught a lot of flack for allowing counties and cities to determine what works best in their own communities and for refusing to tell Mississippi churches how to conduct their affairs. Like North Carolina, Mississippi has relatively low numbers of COVID-19 deaths and no apparent strain on the health care system, despite having a very high rate of citizens with obesity, heart disease, and diabetes. Now, the article points out that small businesses are on life support across both states. Jobless claims have risen to historic levels in the state of the Dogwood and in the state of the Magnolia, now higher than during the financial crisis. Medical advisors in both states are giving warnings and covering all their bases at daily briefings as they stand beside their respective governors. There's no question that both governors have taken this disease seriously 
and offered intelligence ad- intelligent advice about how we should protect ourselves. So how do you explain the vastly different approach to the pandemic from two red states with similarly low coronavirus impact? Well, the difference is in the tone, in the language, and in the viewpoint of how to best mitigate risks and protect citizens. Cooper's instincts are to restrict the personal freedoms of his citizens. Reeves' instincts are to protect the personal freedoms of his. Cooper believes shutting down businesses won't lead to shortages of food and paper products, and that denying the constitutional rights of his residents won't lead to a citizen uprising. Uh, Note, citizens are uh, staging weekly protests at the state capitol and the governor's mansion in Raleigh. Now, by contrast, Reeves in Mississippi has moved to open retail shops, acknowledged the rights of protesters to peaceably assemble at the Capitol, and refused to accept the premise that we must choose between prudent health care measures and protecting our economy. In the state of Michael Jordan, hospitals are losing revenue and laying off personnel because the governor won't allow the treatment of non-coronavirus patients. In the state of Archie Manning, elective procedures have begun again because the governor recognizes Cancer surgeries are pretty essential to the patient. So history will judge how these two governors and the other 48 managed this pandemic. But as the data comes in, it's looking like the quarantines will not prevent us from getting sick. It appears we're basically delaying the inevitable infection rate. And as these long days go by, the models continue to indicate initial predictions were vastly overstated. However, the data on the destruction of our economies and on the hopes and dreams of our citizens may be far worse than ever imagined. The American economy is the greatest in the world because of all the interconnected and voluntary exchanges that take place every day in every community. But the authors say it remains to be seen if this economic miracle of free enterprise can survive the kind of body blows delivered by the heavy hand of government, especially by the kind of authoritarian governors who seem hell-bent on taking a sledgehammer to our economies when a scalpel would have been more useful. Again, this is an article by John L. Pritchett and Ed Teryakian. Marvelous stuff. I will include it in the show notes. Now, I just just to point out, there is a little bit of uh, relief on the horizon. I did see an article pop up last night and was very relieved to see that sanity is slowly returning. Uh, Texas regulators have announced that they will drop cases against salons and barbershops that defied their coronavirus closure order. Remember when Shelley Luther was, you know, arrested and and the judge wanted her thrown in jail for seven days because she refused to apologize for being so selfish and opening up her business so she could continue to feed her child? Well, I'm glad to see that uh, Texas is is finally changing the shutdown rules and and recognizing that maybe this isn't the approach that we want to take. So apparently the the Texas Department of Licensing and Regulation has dropped 200 enforcement cases against barbers and cosmetologists who allegedly kept working throughout April and early May, despite Governor Abbott's order to close amid the coronavirus outbreak. They've also dismissed about 180 complaints that had been filed, but not yet investigated. Now, I'm glad that they're taking a step in the right direction, but, you know, forgive me for for being the, the rude relative who points out the elephant in the room here, but how does this heal the trauma that people like Shelley Luther were put through in the first place. I mean, come on. Being thrown in jail, being arrested, being hauled before the courts, 
This is not to, you know, something that uh, that is life enhancing. It's not something that that actually improves your quality of life and helps you sleep more peacefully at night. It's the kind of stuff that invites ruin, economic ruin and personal ruin. Now that you have a criminal history or an arrest on your record, even if you're not convicted of something that can come back to bite you in ways that uh, sometimes aren't considered. I guess what I'm getting at here is this is why I am always very cautious about getting the state involved as a problem solver in any situation. When you can clearly show that there is a victim, that's okay. That's when the state needs to act in a protective function. But absent a victim, all it can do is complicate and mess up people's lives. And then maybe, just if you're lucky, come back later and say, sorry, (laughs) carry on. It just seems kind of shallow at this point. This is Loving Liberty. We'll be back right after this. All right, we are back. This is Loving Liberty. Thank you so much for being a part of our audience. Whether you're catching the live broadcast or you are catching the podcast, which it turns out is uh, the far more convenient way to uh, listen to material such as this. I know I was kind of a I was kind of slow to the dance here. I, I didn't really I didn't really want to go there. Many, many years of broadcast radio have made me reluctant to believe that perhaps there's a way we could do this where people could listen in on their own you know, time and at their own leisure. I was slow to believe, but now I'm a believer. So to our growing podcast audience, thank you for making us a part of your day. And thank you for sharing us with your friends and helping get the word out there that there is a uh, a principled voice or a principled source of truth and inspiration available to people who want a little break from the red state, blue state tug of war. All right, let's continue on with our discussion about where we are as a nation. And let's ask the question, will our principles, and I mean America's foundational principles, the exceptional principles that differentiated us from pretty much any other nation on earth, be enough to get us through the COVID-19 crisis. Richard Graber, writing for the Foundation for Economic Education, says, yeah, liberty is what made America strong and it's what will make America stand apart. Listen to how he puts this. He says, American exceptionalism is confronting its greatest test in modern times. In less than two months, unemployment has hit Great Depression-era levels. The federal government has injected trillions of dollars into the economy, causing U.S. debt as a percentage of GDP to exceed the debt undertaken during World War II. The future of entire industries hangs in the balance. Schools and universities are shut down, and everything from weddings to baseball seasons are postponed. A threat that only entered our consciousness late last year has claimed tens of thousands of lives, leaving fear and uncertainty in its wake. But he says it's precisely because America is exceptional that many of COVID-19's most pressing challenges are being met. It is American exceptionalism that will lead us out of crisis and onto the road to recovery. Now more than ever, he says we must preserve, protect, and strengthen it. Now, he says America has always stood apart. Alexis de Tocqueville, observing our fledgling democracy in the early 19th century, wrote, quote, The situation of the Americans is therefore quite exceptional, and it may be believed that no democratic people will ever be placed in a similar one, end quote. President Lincoln believed that a nation conceived in liberty was worth the heavy toll 
of what some call civil war. Still, the concept of exceptionalism continues to be debated among scholars and politicians. And in this place, uh, Richard Graeber says, At the Bradley Foundation, we believe American exceptionalism is a set of ideals upon which our country was founded. It's our political framework which upholds individual liberty, limited government, and the rule of law. It's our economic system which values the dignity of work, encourages innovation, and embraces the pursuit of opportunity. And it's our commitment to civil society, voluntary groups, schools, neighborhoods, and churches that leads to flourishing communities across the country. Now, he says the principles and institutions that characterize American exceptionalism have made us the freest and most prosperous country on earth. They've also been resilient during this crisis. At no other time have the tenets of federalism been so fully on display. From the coronavirus uh, pandemic's onset, governors galvanized in ways they believed were best for their states. And while critics say this created a patchwork of policies, that's precisely what the founding fathers intended. Policies that work in California may not work in South Dakota. In cases where a state's authority has been challenged, courts are weighing in thanks to our system of checks and balances. Now, the economy has been devastated, but private enterprise is adapting through innovation. Restaurants are offering curbside service. Distilleries have turned into sanitizer factories. Clothing companies are churning out face masks. Automakers are producing ventilators. Online learning tools have proliferated to help educate the legion of homeschoolers. The ingenuity and initiative of the private sector, even when hamstrung, are rising up to meet the needs of the crisis. And despite social distancing, civil society has filled voids in ways that government simply cannot. For instance, voluntary groups have organized food collections. Churches have provided drive-up services. Neighbors have deployed as errand runners for the elderly. Arts groups have found virtual ways for people to enjoy music, dance, and theater. And Richard Graber says these efforts epitomize American exceptionalism and will serve as the catalyst for the nation's recovery. He reminds us that our constitutional framework provides the latitude to balance human safety with civil liberties. The debate on both sides will continue to be messy, but the ability to voice different perspectives is itself a freedom and puts pressure on elected officials at all levels to make sound decisions. Months from now, we'll have the opportunity to evaluate their performance through our votes. In the meantime, states will continue to adapt, implement, and modify recovery blueprints. Now, because of our free market system, biotech companies rather are in a race to create a COVID-19 vaccine in the same way that private efforts supported the development of the polio vaccine, as well as kidney transplants, advances in the fight against cancer and numerous other medical breakthroughs. The tech sector, too, he says, will play a critical role as we increasingly look at new ways to work, educate and connect. Our public officials should trust and empower civil society to find solutions to the unique problems within communities. Those efforts have already been bolstered by the incredible generosity of American philanthropy. According to The Economist, American generations, I'm sorry, American foundations, rather, corporations and individuals have donated at least $5.3 billion to more than 1,200 organizations around the world in response to the crisis. I have to admit that is really encouraging because we've seen some we've seen some uh, how can I put this uh, less than altruistic behavior on the part of some. But that's uh, that's very encouraging to see how much uh, actual charitable work has happened because of this. 
But as Richard Graber points out, yes, the response has been far from perfect and there will be plenty of time to assess the mistakes. He says if we lose sight of what makes America exceptional and what it means to be a citizen of this great country, we will have lost our way. Going forward, let our renewed appreciation of freedom be an opportunity to strengthen the ideals upon which America was founded. I agree wholeheartedly with what he is saying here. And I want to just go off for a moment on on the the thought of American exceptionalism, because I I think it has been a term that for many people has meant something along the lines of uh, America, we can do no wrong. And if we come over to bomb your country, we are doing you and your country a favor. That is the neoconservative perversion of what passes for American exceptionalism today. And I'm sorry if I'm offending any of my neoconservative brethren. I was once one of you. I was once right there cheering as we bombed those wacky Iraqis back to the Stone Age because they made our gas prices go up over $1.50. Can you imagine? Well, since then, I've had a little bit of time to uh, mature and to think about You know, what do we mean by American exceptionalism? So when I say that I believe America truly is an exceptional country, I don't mean it in the sense that, uh, hey, we are better than everyone else. You know, what was there was an Eddie Murphy movie. I think it was The Distinguished Gentleman in which he's running for office. And there's a there's a politician who running for office. And his, his catchphrase was, God bless America and nobody else. That's what American exceptionalism means to way too many people. I tend to think of it this way, and you don't have to agree with me. I'm just offering this as as a possible way that, that it could be looked at. I believe that America is an exceptional nation in that I believe that this is a promised land. And by promised, I mean it is it, it is beholden to promises made by Almighty God. Now, that doesn't mean that, uh, therefore, you know, whoever is American, if you're born American, why, you stand shoulders above everybody else. No, what I'm talking about is there are certain blessings that are associated with this land. And I think as you look at American history, you can see this. Oceans on either side of us have protected us from military opportunism and plunder by other nations. We have incredible amounts of natural resources and natural beauty. We have been very prosperous, and I think throughout most of our nation's history, America has been a force for good in the world. But I believe that the promises on which those blessings of prosperity and liberty and protection are predicated come along with a responsibility to not use great power for wicked purposes and to not turn our backs on the source of that liberty. And yes, this is this is purely my own opinion. I'm not... You know, I'm not insisting that you have to agree with this. I believe that this is one of the most blessed nations on the face of the earth. And I believe that there's a purpose that God has for this land. But I believe that it is a purpose that is conditioned upon us recognizing him as the source of liberty and doing our best to be godly people, meaning to treat others the way we would want to be treated, to to treat them and to love them the way that God loves all of his children. And I further believe that the further we get away from this, the more likely it is that we will lose those blessings and that we will likely lose those freedoms and maybe even the ability to even occupy this land for ourselves. This is just my opinion, but that's where I'm coming from. And I believe it is with God's help that we can overcome whatever difficulties we now face or will face in the future. We'll be back after this.
Well, once again, welcome back to Loving Liberty. This is the final segment of the first hour of the show. Second hour is coming up. I will open up the phone lines in that hour. And we'll also be spending some time talking about the uh, faith, or I'm sorry, the spiritual revival that took place this uh, last Saturday at the Utah State Capitol. And and I, I know it sounds like, what, was it a religious service of some kind? Not necessarily. I mean, there was there were a lot of religious messages that were delivered, for sure. But uh, I, I kind of enjoyed this. This may have been the most enjoyable gathering from the Utah Business Revival that, uh, that I have yet seen. And they've all been good ones, so don't get me wrong. But I think I enjoyed this message far more. There was, there was far less of a political angle to what was being said. Very, very few politicians and those who did speak uh, were not uh, doing campaign speeches or stumping, you know, for people's votes. It was uh, it was just a remarkable gathering of people from many different faith backgrounds and uh, and even some people who had no particular faith background at all. I mean, look, I'm not saying that pagans can't have faith, but there were very clearly some people who were there who were pagans, nonetheless, very much in support of people's ability to get together and to freely exercise their religious beliefs. I mean, when's the last time you saw people put aside the petty differences and come together with one voice to sound off and say, this is what we support. This is where we are willing to put aside our differences and stand together. It's rare, but I'm telling you, I saw it happen with my own eyes last Saturday. And there is yet another event coming up this Saturday in Syracuse. And that is uh, part of the Utah Business Revival's efforts to to get us back on our feet, back moving again. And my understanding is a country western star Colin Ray will be coming to perform a free concert. Yes, free. And I would encourage you to consider being a part of that. We'll talk more about this in the next hour. I just want to shift gears now and talk a little bit about uh, about the consequences of having crashed the economy. And one of the most powerful arguments that I have seen so far is that it wasn't the virus that crashed the economy. It was the politicians who implemented policies that crashed the economy. And Max Slavo takes it one step further and says it wasn't just the virus that crashed the economy. It was the people who obeyed. I've seen a lot of different examples of uh, peaceful civil disobedience here in the last few weeks, and I'm very encouraged when I see them, not because I think, you know, yeah, you know, anarchy in the UK or whatever. It's because I'm seeing people start to exercise their uh, faculty for independent thought and action and to stop standing there with their hat in their hand waiting for someone to tell them, okay, you may now step closer than six feet to one another, or you may now resume working for a living, or you may now go outside of your home. Here's how Max Slavo puts it. He says, most atrocities in human history have all been committed by individuals and agents of government who were, quote, just following orders or just obeying the law. The virus didn't give any orders. He says it was the people who obeyed the commands of tyrants that crashed the economy and ruined the livelihoods of others. Now, this next part is going to sting, but I'm going to share it with you anyway. Max Slavo says most human beings still think like slaves. Instead of asking questions or using critical thinking skills to ask if something is right before doing it, they simply obey perceived authority. And the truth is, this lockdown is the fault of everyone who complied and everyone who used force to exact revenge on those who disobeyed which means it, has, it was the same in all tyrannical takeovers in history. The mainstream media keeps blaming the economic devastation on the coronavirus, but he says it wasn't the fault of the virus. 
It was the fault of the government and the slave mentality of the police and the public willingly obeying their commands. Mainstream media outlets are still desperately trying to spin the narrative and fault the invisible enemy for the very real toll on human life that the government's overreaction has already caused. But this is nothing more than propaganda. And he says, once you pick it up, you'll be able to see it. The media doesn't want you to put the blame where it belongs and figure things out for yourself. So they hide behind deception headlines that will keep you in fear of COVID-19 for as long as possible. Now, Max Lavo says this is all part of the larger plan to keep the public panicked about a virus and looking the other way when the tyrannical boots of the state come down on them. We know this is what the media does, and we know they're doing it to keep the ruling class in power and the public panicked and in a constant state of fear, so they'll comply with any and all enslavement measures. Now, Larkin Rose is the author of The Most Dangerous Superstition. He lays out just how horrifyingly devastating it is for humans to remain unevolved to the point that they will not say no to an immoral command. The primary threat to freedom and justice is not greed or hatred or any of the other emotions or human flaws usually blamed for such things. Instead, it is one ubiquitous superstition that infects the minds of people of all races, religions, and nationalities, which receives decent, well-intentioned people, deceives rather decent, well-intentioned people into supporting and advocating violence and oppression. Even without making human beings one bit more wise or virtuous, removing that one superstition would remove the vast majority of, of injustice and suffering from the world. Instead of just blindly obeying the commands, Max Lavo says, think about it and ask if what you're doing is right. If you're not familiar with the Milgram experiment, can I suggest take a little bit of time, take your lunch hour. Maybe you're listening to the show on your lunch hour. Hi, Russ and Melissa. I know they listen to the show on their lunch hour. If you haven't studied the Milgram experiment, Google it and learn what Stanley Milgram learned about what people are willing to do when they perceive that they are simply following an order given by someone in authority, someone who takes responsibility for that order, and how they believe it, it absolves them from any personal responsibility. In a nutshell, in the Milgram experiment, a person in a lab coat is there directing an experiment, and the participants were studied to see how far they would go with this experiment. They were told that they would be reading a quiz to a person out of sight, but heard, you know, on the other side of a partition or through a speaker, and whenever that person gave a wrong answer, they would press a button that would administer a mild electrical shock. Now, they were also told the more wrong answers the person gets, the harder that shock is going to become. And so they would proceed on. And if you've never seen the video of it, it's it's really quite intense because they're told that the 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 power of the shock is increasing. The person on the other end of the, the speaker, the person who's answering the questions and getting some of them wrong. Isn't actually hooked up to anything. OK, they're not hooked up to electrical leads, but as those shocks are getting more powerful, they scream as if they are being electrocuted. And you can see the person who's administering the experiment looking at the guy in the lab coat and the guy in the lab coat just simply says the experiment must continue. And it was shocking the number of people who would keep going to the point where they believed they may have shocked a person to death. But because they were just obeying orders, because someone in authority was telling them the experiment must continue. They continued on. 
And, and the thing that's so amazing about this is the, these were not evil people. These weren't scheming people with snidely whiplash mustaches who, you know, twirled the ends as they cackled evil and evil glee, you know, with the, the harm that they were going to perpetrate on somebody. No. They were just normal people like you and me who believed that if someone in authority says this is what you must do, the right thing to do, the good thing for me to do as a good citizen is to follow their command. Even when it's making me uncomfortable, even when I look at them, really? I have to continue? Okay, I'll push the button. And they were to continue to read the questions, even when they think the person on the other end is either unconscious or perhaps dead. They'll read the question. No answer? I'm sorry, that is a wrong answer. And they'd push the button. It's very chilling, but it teaches us something very important about ourselves. And this is what Max Slavo is getting at. Do you think about what you're doing instead of just obeying someone's directions? Do you even have the moral right to take the rights of others? All we have to do is get in the habit of applying a minimal amount of critical thinking to something in order to start getting it right. But here's what it takes. Max Lavo says, but you have to be willing to take a look at yourself and correct your mistakes yourself and take responsibility for your own actions. See, as long as we could pass it off to the guy in the lab coat, well, you know, he's the one who's responsible here. I'm just doing what I'm supposed to do. No, look at your own actions. But this is exactly what most Americans won't do. Blaming a virus and blindly obeying the ruling class and its foot soldiers is much easier than critical thinking. And, and part of this is because we're trained at a very early age to punish people who step outside the lines here. People who question. Peer pressure will cause people to, to defy reality simply because they don't want to be seen as the person who's out of step with everybody else. They don't want to be the person who's singled out to be ostracized. Max Lavo says the police state and tyranny is brought to you by those willing to follow commands regardless of the morality of the command. Tyrants can't have power without people willing to enforce the tyranny. Bottom line is, if there are no order followers, there are no orders. And maybe you can't change everybody else's mind, but you can certainly decide for yourself, is this the right thing to do or not? 